You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. Amen. Amen. Um, If there's anything that we could maybe summarize the scriptures so far as we've kind of walked through uh, the Bible this year as a church family, if you're new with us, we've been walking through the scriptures is that we learned in Genesis, we've been blessed to be a blessing. Uh, That this covenant that God makes with Abraham is, is to redeem and rescue a people so that we would be a blessing. So New City Church, thank you for being a blessing just in very tangible uh, ways through uh, Operation Christmas Child, but also the little pantry and all the children. So thank you for just participating in that and just the millions of ways you guys continue to bless our city and uh, bless each other is uh, just great to watch uh, from uh, afar in, in many ways. And it's just been such a blessing to be be one of your pastors for all these years to watch that happen in just so many uh, tangible uh, tangible ways. And so uh, we're going to continue our series, uh, uh, Jesus on Every Page. We've been walking through the entire scriptures. We're going to be doing that for the next few months, and we're going to take a little break for Advent. Um, but we're going to uh, look at, finally get out of Genesis, and we're going to be looking at Exodus for a couple of weeks before we get into Advent. So if you have a Bible, turn me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter uh, 3, where we'll start. I'm just going to read a little portion of Exodus to kind of get us into the context of what's going on, and then uh, we'll look at quite a few chapters from Exodus. We won't do the whole book this morning. Um, And uh, like Matt said last week, it is a good challenge to go through multiple chapters of the Bible, but we'll hit some of the highlights to kind of help us understand what's going on in the book of of Exodus here. So Exodus chapter 3, this is where Moses encounters the burning bush. Uh, Some of you might have seen the uh, the film, the cartoon. Um, this is actually fairly accurate, um, but we're going to pick it up in Exodus chapter three, starting in verse one. We'll just read the first ten chapter, ten verses there. Excuse me. Now Moses was keeping the flock for his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And this is the word of God for us 
this morning. If, if you were to um, ask someone if, if to summarize the scriptures or maybe even summarize the gospel, some have used v- varying ways to do that. And one of the ways we found helpful as a church is to think of the Bible as, as four chapters. Now, there are many chapters um, in the, the scriptures, but there's these four main kind of movements or these four kind of main uh, parts of scripture that kind of help us get the, the understanding of the whole piece of what God is up to and why we, when we say the gospel, we're talking about why this thing is good news because God is trying to answer some very existential and deep questions for all of humanity. And so when we look at these four chapters, the first question arises is, how did it all begin? Why are we here? And we looked at that in Genesis, right? This good God who creates the world, right? He creates us in his image to steward uh, creation and to reflect his goodness into the world and to enjoy his creation and enjoy God and enjoy uh, one another, It's this gift of God. It's all grace. He didn't have to do it, but he did it for his glory and for our good. Now, that only lasts, unfortunately, for about two chapters of the Bible. And then the second question becomes, well, what went wrong? And so the scriptures are trying to answer the question, well, we call it sin. It's where we said, thank you, God, but no, thank you. I don't want to be a steward of your creation. I don't want to love you with all my heart. I don't want to love my neighbor as myself. And and sin enters the word, and enmity, and division, and pain, and cancer, and tsunamis. All these things come into the world and fracture the world so that all of creation walks with the limp because we don't want to live under the good and gracious authority of God. So what went wrong? Well, sin came over. Well, the, the third chapter is, well, what's going to make everything right? Who's going to save us? Who's going to rescue us? And as we would say, the Christian story is, well, Christ. And first it begins with his incarnation, that Jesus comes as a human. He takes on flesh. He becomes the perfect human, but he also is fully God, and he's the perfect sacrifice. He becomes a sacrifice and a substitute for us. He enters into the pain of humanity, into the sinful humanity, into the the condemnation of humanity, and says, I'm going to take on the evil of the world. I'm going to take on the pain of the world. I'm going to take on the sin of the world to make it right so that you can have a renewed relationship with me. Now you can reflect my image out in the world, a renewed image. And not only am I going to make you right, but I'm going to make the entire cosmos right. I'm going to renew it and restore it. That even our bodies and creation itself will be renewed in resurrection. And then the fourth question is, well, where is history headed? How's it end? Well, we, some have called this consummation, restoration, renewal. We talk about the new heavens and the new earth and revelation, right? This God who, where heaven and earth come together in this place, we will be renewed, right? Our bodies will be renewed. All will be made right. There'll be no more sin and no more death and no more suffering and no more injustice. That the whole, all of history because of Christ and his life and his death and resurrection is moving to a place where God is saying, I'm making all things new, even you and even the entire cosmos. And I find these four chapters and these questions compelling. And and this is why, because everybody in humanity is asking the same questions. Every story is asking the same questions. Why are we here? What went wrong? How is this going to be made right? Where is it all headed? You can, you can look at, at the Star Wars films, right, Scott? You can look at the Chronicles of Narnia stories. You can look at the Marvel movies. You can look at politics. And everybody's asking the question, who's going to save us? Who's going to rescue us? How is this thing going to be made right? And so we all have, we can say, well, I'm not religious, I'm not really into that. Well, we all have messiahs, we all have pseudo-saviors that we lean into to answer those questions. Why are we here? 
what went wrong? How's it going to be made right? And you can't ask anyone under the sun and say, and, and you can't tell them, hey, you're not religious. Everybody's religious. Everybody bows to something. Everybody sacrifices to something. Everybody finds something that gives them meaning or life. It could be their family. It could be their job. It could be their hobby. It could be the chief's football. Everybody bows down in a religious posture. You can't say that nobody's religious. It's only Christians. That's not true. We're all looking for a savior to rescue us in some way, shape, or form. And so when we pick up Exodus, um, it's asking that same question. How are we going to be rescued? Because in, in Genesis, God makes these promises to his people, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all of creation is going to be restored one day. But it's gone off the rails as we pick up Exodus. It, does, it seems like God's promises perhaps have failed. Because when we pick it up in Exodus, if you know the story, right, Israel's living under Egyptian slavery. And they're probably going, hey, I remember this promise you made to Abraham. Is that still valid? Is that going to happen? Because it seems like things aren't going very well. I feel like we were supposed to be the chosen people, the promised people. But here we are making bricks for the enemy. Here we are being enslaved. It doesn't seem like this flourishing that you talk about is happening. And so we pick it up in, in Exodus and we begin to see how it begins to answer that question, who is going to rescue us? Who is going to make things right? How is this going to get better? Because it seems like these promises have been broken. And so the story of Exodus really is a, a, the battle between the God of Israel and the, the gods of Egypt and, and what we learn through the interactions with Moses of what this God is like and how he works in the world and how he does rescue us and rescue the whole creation. So let's let's look at that for a few moments. And I just want to just kind of like two big ideas this morning is uh, um, what we see through the interactions with Moses is we see a, a sufficient Lord and the sufficient Lord, and we also see the saving Lord. And there's a little implication in that that I'll get to at the end here. But the, the, the sufficient Lord, and there's a reason why I, I talk about it in, in, in terms of the sufficient Lord and sufficient gospel, because if you remember Moses' story, he's one who is very insecure about this whole mission and this whole plan. And if you know the backstory of Moses, again, we've said this time and time again as we've walked through the scriptures is God doesn't use the, the moral, superior, righteous, faithful men and women for his plan, does he? No, it's like the opposite. That's what's so confusing about the gospel. It seems like, well, God, should you be using like the one who, who has it all together, who's righteous, who's pure? Moses is none of those things. He's actually a murderer. <laughs> so, so the couple chapters before we pick it up in chapter three, Moses has first been born as a, as a Hebrew boy. He's a Hebrew boy, and he's, he, he's, he's uh, uh, living under the, 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 the thumb of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, the king at the time, this one previously to chapter 3, says, I want you to kill all the Hebrew boys. So Moses would qualify for that. So Moses gets sent down the, the Nile, if you, as you know the this, this story, in a, in a basket, and he ends up in Egypt, right? And so he lives his days under the thumb of Pharaoh and under Egyptian oppression as this outsider. And then there's a, as the story goes, there's this one day where Moses sees his people, an Israelite, an Egyptian fighting, and the Egyptian, or, and the Egyptian and the Israelites are, are going back and forth. And, and what happens? Well, Moses actually intervenes and ends up killing the man. 
And so Moses is on the run. He's a wanderer when we pick him up in chapter 3. He's a, he's a shepherd who's been wandering. He's a murderer. But, but there's something in him that he sees the, the pain of his people. He's an Israelite, but he's been living under the rule of Egypt all of these years. And you can imagine how insecure he would, he would be. One, he doesn't know this God very well at this point. And he's a murderer. Like, what, what do I have to work with here? And so he flees to, to Midian. He's been wandering in the desert for, for 40 years, and he's, he's very insecure. And I want to just highlight his insecurity, as a lot of us know the story. But if you don't know the story, it's, it's, I think, a very important understanding of how God works and why the Lord is sufficient. Because in chapter 3, after he encounters him at the burning bush, you pick it up in, in verse 11, and he says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Like, <laughs> me? Like, really, of all the people, like, isn't there someone else? Like, is there a JV team or a practice squad or somewhere we can draw from, right? Who, who am I? And then he, a few verses later in 13, he says, he says, then Moses said to God, if I, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? right? Like, I don't even know who you are. Like, I barely understand this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Like, what am I supposed to say? Like, first, you're going to choose me of all people, and then what am I even going to say to them? Which, when you get to chapter 4, if you jump ahead a few verses, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. They're not going to listen to what I, why would they listen to me of all people? I mean, there's probably some who even know my background. They know I'm a murderer. They, they know I'm an outsider. Like I, I'm not, of all the people under the sun, I don't think I'm the one to pull off this mission. And then he talks about his actual speech impediment of some kind or just not being eloquent. We don't know what, what this problem was. But if you go down to verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Right? They say two things in, in life, if you survey people, the two things that people fear the most is public speaking and death. And it's a close race, right? So somehow Moses, maybe he had marbles in his mouth, right? You know, just you can't get the word out. You can't put sentences together. You're not articulate. You can see his insecurity, right? Who am I? I can't even speak. Talk, Lord. I don't speak so good. I can't get the words out. Like, I'm the one that you're going to use. I'm the one that you're going to put on the stage between this powerful Egyptian nation. Like, like me? Are you kidding me here? Like, do you understand who I am? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've, where I've been? I can barely talk. And then in verse 13... He tries to deflect. If I can find it. Um, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. I love the honesty between God and Moses. If you read Exodus at all, I just love, there's, there's so many interactions, and we won't get to all of them uh, today, but just this honest relationship of like, I just can't do it, <laughs> Right? And I think there's something in that. I mean, we have the book of Psalms. I think there is a little side note is that we can talk to God like this. We can pray like this. Like, I just don't think I can do this. 
I don't think I'm eloquent enough. I don't know if I have the guts to do that. We've all felt that weight of God asking us to do something or encountering something in our family or a difficult season of life or, or suffering, saying, I'm not sufficient for these things. I, I can't do these things. And, and it's very clear that before Moses is going to encounter Pharaoh, he's, he's not up to the task, but there's one fatal flaw with Moses, and it's a fatal flaw that all of us carry around in different shapes and sizes, is that his eyes are fixed on himself and they're not fixed on the Lord, the Lord who is sufficient, that his gaze is in the wrong place. Because here's, here's a little secret. We're all just like Moses. We're all weak. We all have marbles in our mouths. Like that's the, the, the wink, wink, the, the comedy of God is that this is all he has to work with. Weak and broken and sinful people, welcome to the club. There is no other plan B. But yet his eyes and his gaze are fixed in the, the wrong place. And that's why when we picked it up in chapter three, the Lord is showing him that he's sufficient because before he can go out on the mission, what does he do? He encounters the Lord. He says, come in, in verse 5. In, in chapter 3, verse, verse 5, do not come near, take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he's afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring the people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is a, 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 a picture of grace to Moses. He barely knows what the God, this God's name is, and yet he gets acquainted with him. Hey, come, take off your sandals. I'm a holy God. I'm like no other God. This is a sacred moment. I want you to get acquainted with me. He reveals his name. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of, of Jacob. There's a revelation that happens for Moses because that's how this works, is that if you have to get to know this sufficient Lord first. He says, come in first. Of course you're insufficient. Of course you're not good at talking. Of course you're weak. Of course you don't know what to say, but just, just trust me. I'm going to guide you the entire way. And that's how the, the gospel works on us. We're all weak. We're all insecure. We're all sinful. Moses killed a guy. And yet every religion, every philosophy has some version of fix yourself up first. Get your act together first. Pray enough prayers. Knock on enough doors. Give enough money. And then maybe the gods will bless you. Then maybe the gods will, will save you. If you just live a good enough life, maybe God will throw you a bone of grace. But the gospel's so backwards. Here's this guy who, who doesn't have the resume, right? You go to LinkedIn and look up Moses. It's not good. He, he's not going to be at HR the next week very quickly because of his, his past. Like, hey, you murdered someone? And yet here is God taking the initiative saying, you aren't sufficient for these things, but I am sufficient for these things things, but let's first come get acquainted. We'll deal with your other stuff later. That's how the gospel works. And we're living in this age where it's a gospel of morality, right? It's a gospel of, of politics. It's a gospel of how do you vote? It's a gospel of what social causes are you into? But that's not the gospel. That's not where we begin. We don't begin with behavior modification. We don't begin with morality. We begin with the good news of a God who comes near sinful and broken people that don't have it all figured out. That's the good news. 
We'll deal with that other stuff later. That's, that's called discipleship and sanctification. That comes down the line. And yet we're preaching this gospel of get your life together and then maybe we can talk. That's not what God is doing here with Moses. That's not what God does with us. We go into his presence first. We see his sufficiency, his goodness, time and time again. And then he sends us out because no one is fit for these things. And then notice this, this pattern of assurance that, that God gives Moses. And he, he does it multiple times. And this is kind of, I'll summarize a couple, couple chapters here. Well, we just saw it in chapter three, this, this kind of first, this vision or revelation, this personal meeting in the burning bush. Like, I want to show you who I am, that I'm holy, that I'm good. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I've made these promises to redeem the whole world. He begins to show them. And, and then Moses is commissioned in, in verse 10. We saw that. But then notice if you jump over to chapter five, we already see the failure of Moses and Aaron. And in chapter 5, here's what we read. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that they may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. He's like, oh, that's nice. I, I don't really care. Who, who is this God? I, I don't, it doesn't really matter. You need to get back to work. Like Israel, we have work to do. We have a deadline. Doesn't matter. Just please, right? They've already failed, right? God's making all these promises. I'm sufficient. I'm going to leave you. I've heard the cries of my people. And here goes Aaron and Moses, and they've already failed. I'm not going to do that. Pharaoh's like, ah, I don't really care who Israel is. I don't really care who you are. I don't care who you've, that you've met this God. Big deal. They need to get back to work. But notice, if you keep going in chapter 5, how God reassures him one more time that it's going to work out. Go to chapter 5, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Again, I love the honesty here. Hey, remember that deal you made? You keep talking about this deliverance. It doesn't seem like you're keeping up the end of the bargain. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not take myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with the Great acts of judgment. He reminds them again, like this is like a preemptive gospel, like hear the gospel again, hear the good news again, these promises that I made to Abraham. I'm that God, I'm not breaking those promises. I know you just fell on your face, but I will deliver them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will go before you, Moses. Stop looking at your navel. Start looking at me. 
I will carry you to where you need to go. He keeps reassuring him, reassuring him again and again. When doubt arises, when pain arises, when he feels like I'm not sufficient for the task, I'm with you, Moses. I'm with you. And we see that at the end of chapter 6. We see it at the beginning of chapter 7. Constantly this rhythm of assurance. Assurance, I'm with you. I'm with you. Remember the promises. Remember the promises. I never lie. I always keep my promises. And that's what I, I, I love about the, the gospel is, is that it's not, you know, get your life together and then maybe God will bless you. It's about a God who moves towards us first. And um, in our confessions, uh, one of my favorites is Heidelberg Catechism number one. And it says, what is our only comfort in life and death? Some of us know this and we, we talk about it around here, but what is my only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully, fully paid for my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly, willingly, and ready from now on to live for him. That when we trust and believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to assure us that I have not left you, I have not abandoned you, I will make sure that you make it to the end. And some of us have grown up in a lot of environments and a lot of church traditions where it's I got to make sure every Sunday I go up to the pastor and I shake his hand or I give my life to Christ because I'm just not sure because I had a nasty thought this week. I said a nasty thing this week. And it's not that we're light on sin or minimize that. We need to confess those things, but that doesn't mean that, that somehow God walked away. It's about renewing a relationship that's already there. It's like when you have a, a fight with your wife, you tell her you're sorry. Why? Because there's a big, huge gap between intimacy has been broken because you've hurt each other and you haven't repaired that relationship. It's the same thing with us and God. When we fall on our faces, that, that if we're not really believing the gospel, we don't believe that he can forgive all of our sins and somehow he's walked away. And so that's why we keep going to the altar. We keep saying, I'm sorry. We keep, right, recommitting. Maybe if I just do a little more, maybe God will love me. But he says, this gospel is... For you, it's grace, it's mercy. I make the first move. I hang on to you. This work I began, I will complete. And so time and time again through Scripture and even in our own confessions, that reminds us that, that our salvation is, is secure, that God is working it out through us. And he's doing that in a, in a very Old Testament way with, with Moses to remind him that he's sufficient, that I will carry you to the end. It has little to do with you, Moses. And about your abilities it has everything to do with me that I am sufficient for you. And, and as you kind of keep moving through the story, even in chapter four, there, there's these, these moments. He gives these three signs of the, the staff becomes a serpent. And the, you remember the, the part where the, he puts his hand in the cloak and his hand is healed and the, the Nile turns to blood. Like, like what is that? Like we read those as just very strange parts of the story, but it's actually God reassuring Moses again. He's saying, I'm sufficient. You know the serpent that you had in your hand that turned into the staff? Well, Pharaoh's that serpent. Sin is that serpent. 
The enemy is that serpent. You don't need to be afraid. I'm protecting you, right? When he puts his hand in the cloak and it becomes diseased and then he heals it, he says, I'm the God of all life, of healing, of cleansing. I will heal you. I will save you. You don't need to be afraid, <laughs> right? When he turns the Nile into to, to blood, well, the Nile was the, the, the center of, of life for the Egyptian gods. It's a place of blood. It turns into this place of death because there's no sustenance anymore. What is he saying? He says, I'm the one who saves. I'm the one who gives life. I'm with you, Moses. Don't worry. I'm in control of the whole thing. You always think the other gods are winning, but I'm sufficient. My gospel is sufficient for you. And I think this pattern, and I'm not just pulling this out of Exodus and saying, oh, this is just how it is for, for Moses. I think this pattern is all over Scripture is that we come in first to encounter God's grace, God's mercy, God's holiness, God's beautiful, that before we are sent out, before we realize who we really are, just like Moses, that God is patient with us, God is kind to us, God is working with us. We see that with John the Baptist in the wilderness, right? He's prepared for the mission before he goes to proclaim that this Messiah, this spotless lamb is coming. You remember Paul in Arabia and in Galatians chapter 1, he has to wait multiple years before he becomes one of the greatest missionaries that the world has seen. He encounters this Christ and he's just like, hold on, hold on, we have some work we need to do here first. You need to experience my presence a little bit longer. You need to linger with me a little bit longer. Even Jesus himself spent 40 days in the wilderness being prepared for public ministry. You need to cling to the Father for 40 days and, and fight these temptations to prepare you. And then remember in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, when, when Isaiah the prophet encounters the glory and the power of God, right? He sees this beautiful God, this powerful God, and he, he realizes his own sin. And then when he gets to, to verse 8, what does he say? Here I am, send me. I've seen your glory. I've seen your goodness. I've seen your beauty. And I've seen my own sin, my own weakness, my own insufficiency. Now here I am, Go and send me. And so this rhythm of coming in, experiencing, encountering the presence of God before going out, reminding us that he is sufficient for whatever God calls us to is so important. Because I think there's a lot of, you know, we're, quote unquote, if you're in the, the Christian world, you're in the evangelical world, <clears throat> you know, activism, service, mission, but if it's built on our own gifting and our own experience and our own grit and money, and it's not built on people that are being empowered by the presence of God, we're not going to make it. If it's about us and our own gifting and abilities, just like Moses and feeling like, well, I'm not sufficient for these things. Well, none of us are, but it's, it's leaning into God like the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, Psalm 127. The workers labor in vain. Unless we aren't driven by his presence and his power, the labor will never happen. And that's how it's always worked. That's how the gospel works us. That's how the gospel's working on Moses. He's receiving his grace, receiving uh, faith, being encountering this God, getting to know him, what he's like, and taking his gaze off of his insufficiency, but putting on the, the sufficient Lord and the sufficient gospel. Which leads us to the obvious thing of the saving Lord. 
maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not as obvious, but <clears throat> but God is also revealing himself as the one who saves ultimately. Because when we go back to chapter two, I didn't read it, but at the end of chapter two, he's already made this preemptive promise this gospel promise. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Like God is not shocked by any of this, of our weakness, of our sin, of the way the world is. He hears the cries of his people. He hears their groaning. He sees the suffering. He's not turning a cold ear to us. And he's already said this before. Like they're not worthy of this. They, they don't deserve to be rescued. Like there's nothing in Israel that says, yep, those are my people. Faithful, committed, loving, <laughs> kind, I mean, they're not stiff-necked. I mean, they don't worship other gods. I mean, they are all for me or the opposite, right? That's why Deuteronomy says, hey, why did God choose Israel to be Israel? Because God loved them because he loved them. He just loved them. It had nothing to do with their power or their ability or their resources. That's how the gospel works. So here's this, this saving Lord reminding us that he hears our cries, that he rescues his people, that forgiveness is available. Now, notice when we get to the plagues. Now, the plagues get misunderstood, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but they get really misunderstood. Like, what are these, these four? But the plagues, remember, this is a battle between the God of Yahweh, the God of Israel, I should say, and the Egyptian gods. The plagues represent the worship of Egypt. The, the, the people where they put their, their worship, their affection, right, in the creation. So, so when we see the plagues, notice a couple things here. They're kind of broken down in like three kind of interesting um, groupings. The first three plagues are, you remember in chapter 7? We see the Nile River. We see the frogs. We see the gnats, Right? So these, these plagues strike water and ground, right? They're, they're kind of on the lower level. That's what they do, right? Have you ever been around a gnat? They're so terrible, annoying, part of the fall. Um, frogs are cool. I don't know what, what frogs, but, but there were de definitely these, these gods where they, they, they would see the, the, the creation and they would bow down to these things and they would, they would worship these things and they would say, okay, God, you need to answer our prayers on the lower level, the water and the ground. But you notice the second group of plagues begins to strike the animals and flesh and humans, right? See the livestock being attacked in chapter 9. You see um, boils on their skin. It's attacking humanity. It's, it's attacking the, the livestock, their livelihood. There's this lower level, but then there's kind of this middle level. And then you notice the third group. It goes higher and higher. You see hail at the end of chapter 9, the locusts in chapter 10. Then you see even the weather being plagued and the darkness that comes, the weather itself. What, what is this all about? You see, in the ancient world, especially for Egypt, they saw the world as a three-story reality. There's a lower level, a middle level, and an upper level. And there's gods that control all of these levels. And if we bow down and we sacrifice and we get things right, then maybe these gods will relent, right? And so when God creates these, these plagues and he enacts judgment on Egypt, what is he saying? I'm the God of all creation. I'm the God who saves. These gods are not sufficient. 
right? These, these gods don't give life. They only bring death. This is not how the gospel works. The gospel isn't, well, if I just say enough prayers, bow down enough, right, do enough sacrifice, then maybe the gods will relent. He says, no, I'm the God over all of creation. I'm renewing all things. I'm the one who's ultimately going to rescue you. And we know that Egypt was under judgment because remember how the whole story <laughs> begins is that they're already slaughtering Hebrew boys, right? They're not worshiping the one true God. They're bowing down to all different kinds of God. But Israel's God saying, I'm the Lord and Savior of the whole thing. Grace and mercy is, is mine, reminding Pharaoh that he's the sovereign Lord. He's the sovereign judge. Everything it seems like God is doing with Moses and Israel is to assure them that I'm with you, right? That, yeah, you're insufficient, but I am sufficient. You don't see rescue, but I'm the one who ultimately is going to rescue. I'm the one who saves. I'm the one who makes right. And we know that salvation is bloody and messy, and it's going to require a sacrifice. And that's why when we get down to the final plague, it's the plague of taking out the Egyptian boys. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, but remember Egypt was already under judgment because they'd already been slaughtering Hebrew boys. The Bible doesn't try to explain this away. It is a difficult part of scripture. I'm not gonna try to make sense of it either. But we understand that salvation and rescue requires sacrifice and it's bloody and it's messy and there's evil and there's sin and there's things that, that have to be done for things to be made right. And when we get down to chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12, in verse 29, it says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night and he and his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds and you have said and be gone and bless me also. There's this cry of Israel to be saved and rescued. Now there's this cry in Egypt because judgment has, has come. Now, now here's what we miss often in the story is how patient God is with Pharaoh, how patient God is with Egypt. He's giving them every opportunity to repent and turn to him, but they refuse. They ignore him. They keep worshiping other gods. We're going to keep going our own way. Even though you've seen my miracles, even though you've seen my pro provision, they say no Thank you. And it's bloody and it's messy, but, but here's what's so interesting about this is that as God initiates the Passover, spreading the blood over the doorways to save his people, God also is saying, I'm the one who's sufficient. I'm the one who's going to provide the sacrifice. You can't do it on your own. Your morality's not going to get it done. Your religion's not going to get it done. Your good behavior's not going to get it done. Your, your gifting's not going to get it done. But the Lord steps in and says, I'm the one who's going to provide even the sacrifice, even the blood sacrifice that is necessary. And I think it's important for us to, to, to see this in, in multicolor and technocolor is the substitute and sacrifice is so essential for us that Israel's not worthy, Moses isn't worthy. That's why Jesus has to be that sacrifice. We need a better sacrifice. We need a worthy sacrifice. 
that we're all made in the image of God, yes, but we all fall short of the glory of God. It's kind of interesting in our days. I, I hear this comment a lot. Like, for the most part, people are good. Is that true? I mean, you don't have to believe the Bible. You don't have to believe in sin. It's fine. But when I get up next to myself, I cannot say that's true. For the most part, I'm good. Like, I have moments. But, but to say that I love God and I love my neighbor with, with all my heart, like all day long, I'm thinking about how can I make Christie's life better and my kid's life better and my neighbor's life better and the people I work with life's better. Like, like is that your heart? Well, when I see injustice, how often am I indifferent to it? Say, like, oh, stinks for them, right? Is that too honest for church, <laughs> right? But, but I think it's so easy for us to think like, like ultimately we're, we're good and we have good intentions, but when we really get close to our own souls and our hearts, we know there's a lot of work to be done. And there has to be a huge, beautiful, eternal sacrifice made on our behalf because we're just not up for it. And that's what's so amazing about the gospel is that when we get to the Passover meal, when this Passover meal is instituted, which fast forward ends up being the Lord's Supper, which we're about to take here in the moment, is this lamb is provided, right? This sacrificial lamb, this perfect spotless lamb. And if you know the, the story, <laughs> you know what that lamb is pointing to. So imagine for thousands and thousands of years, Jewish people celebrating the Passover reminding each other when God spared them. But they spared them not because of their behavior, not because of their goodness, not because they were the chosen people, but because a sacrifice was made and was provided for them through the lamb. Pointing to the, the day when the one pure spotless lamb, that's why all of scripture points to Jesus, is that one day all of this, this chaos and blood and sacrifice and substitute and all these things that are going on in Egypt are, are pointing to that day when that one sacrifice will come, that one sufficient sacrifice, that perfect lamb will come and he'll sit among them with friends. And he'll institute this meal. And if you fast forward to Matthew 26, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, which is just a carryover from the Passover meal, he sits his disciples down, he sends them out to get the, the, the supplies, but the, the one thing that is missing from a typical Passover meal, and the one thing that's essential that isn't there, that's really clear, and the disciples must have been scratching their head is, hey, Jesus, where's the lamb? You're a Jewish man. Like, you know how this works, right? You know the customs. You know the traditions. You know the Old Testament really well from what I, what I hear. Where's the lamb? Well, you know where the lamb is. He's sitting among them. I'm the lamb. I'm the sufficient Lord in Exodus. I'm the Lord that saves and rescues you. But now I'm going to ultimately save you with myself with my own life, my own death, my own resurrection. I'm the pure spotless lamb because you couldn't do it on your own. Moses couldn't do it. Israel couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Joseph and Mary couldn't do it. No one could pull it off. Only I can pull it off. And so he institutes this meal and he, he says, it's take and eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he, he said, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. 
So when we, we come to the, the table, all of the stories of Exodus come colliding into our present with Jesus. All, all the blood, all the guts, all the crossing over the rivers, <laughs> the Red Sea, God providing a provision for them, reminding him of his promises, all of that is here and why the church weekly, they don't have to do it weekly, but we do it weekly, is we're reminded of those stories that we're part of that same Abrahamic story and that same Moses story, the God who is sufficient, the God who provides, the God who rescues. And we need someone like a Moses to come from the outside, namely Jesus who came from heaven to move into the neighborhood to rescue us, to forgive us, to give us hope in a future. And what's important for this is to remember one important detail, and this is the, the simple little implication of all this, is that God was rescuing Israel for one mission, to be a kingdom of priests in the world. God rescues us to be a kingdom of priests in the world, to shine out in our lives, in our actions, in our families, in our neighborhoods, wherever we are found, to show the goodness and grace and mercies of God, to show a God who is making all things new, that as we do the work of the gospel, as we, we do good works, we are essentially saying there's a new kingdom that has broken in and we are here to make sacrifices for God. It's not to get fat and go like, hey, we get to go to heaven, yay, yay us, we have our sins forgiven, but to be a, a priesthood of believers that live this out in the world, emulating, demonstrating, showing what this God is like. And he's a God who is sufficient. He's a God who rescues. He's a God who's merciful and kind. He's a God who loves. He's a God who is patient. He's a God that is worthy of all praise. And so as we take the supper this morning, it's, it's a good reminder that maybe there are some things in our lives we need to kind of lay before the Lord. Maybe there's other things we're looking for sufficiency for. Maybe there's other gods we're looking to, other things that we think will give us meaning and hope. Maybe we're walking through a tough season and our eyes are really fixed on our navels or we're fixed on, you know, I got to fix this, we're grit, you know, money. I don't know, we need the right people. Or, and, and those are all real things. But maybe God is asking you to flip your gaze towards him to say, I'm sufficient. I'm, I've already gone before you and it's all going to work out in the end, ultimately. Like our gospel is like a future-oriented gospel. That's what's so amazing about it. Like God's already gone ahead and done what we couldn't do for ourselves. Like we're going to be okay. Like it can suck at moments. I don't know if I can say that in church, but it can, it can be really hard in moments. Right, right here now, we're not diminishing suffering and injustice. Oh, no. But the future is secure. We're good. So that should enliven us to be those kind of priests that God has called us to be because the future is already secure. Like that's the gift, right? Like, he wins in the end. We win in the end. Like, that, that should make us the most humble, joyful people in the earth in, in all the mess because the future is already secured. It's already ours. And we get to live that out in the here and the now. Now I'm just preaching another sermon. But may this meal remind us of those things, whatever you're walking in today, that God is sufficient. God is sufficient.